a freshman orient at a, a freshman orientation at a college lasted for three days. And at its con con conclusion, there was a big reception for the new students. Now, the faculty and the administration was there as well. And while the hundreds uh, were making small talk and drinking punch, and uh, an older proper woman said to one student, do you like the college thus far? And he replied, it's all right. I like most everything except for that president. That guy's an old geezer. He's about 20 years behind the times. And the older woman gasped and said, young man, do you know who I am? And the freshman candidly replied, no. And she said, I am the president's wife. And the, fre and the freshman said, well, do you know who I am? And with a puzzled look, the woman said, why, no. And the boy said, good. And he ran off. <laughs> we spend a great deal of life trying to discover who we are and why we are here. Uh, a lot of identity going on. And in our current sermon series of one, we took a break last Sunday for Mother's Day, but we are trying to make strides toward unity and allowing God to use us to make a difference. Now, allow me to give you a basically a previously viewed on uh, Happy Valley Community Church. Uh, we don't have any kind of segue for that for everyone to see in, online, but let me review a little bit what we've looked at so far. On the first Sunday, we looked at building the church by tearing down the walls. We looked at Romans chapter 16, and we saw a whole group of people there from the church that were from diverse backgrounds, and, and, but they still came together. And we, we, we determined to remain unified as a church ourselves, deepening, deepening our relationships with one another and continuing on with the purpose of letting others know about the saving grace of Jesus. The second Sunday of this series, we looked at the cost of following Christ. And uh, we looked at Philippians chapter 1, and we learned that to be united with Christ and to move toward oneness, it would take sacrifice. A sacrifice like Jesus' sacrifice, a partnership that has a cost and comes from love. And I encourage us all to sacrifice completely like a pig rather than contribute like a chicken. And uh, hopefully you remembered that. And then on the third Sunday, uh, we looked at making a difference. And we looked at the good old story of David and Goliath from 1 Samuel chapter 17. We discovered there that it, there is no enemy too strong for God to overcome, no weapon too weak for God to use, and no battle too big for him to win. And in the words of Larry Walters, that balloon-flying, lawn-chair-riding guy, you just can't sit there. you got to do something. And so we need to take a risk to be used by God to make a difference in the lives around us. And that was the challenge for that Sunday. Now, today we get back on board in this series of one, and, and uh, we're going to look at two contrasting views when it comes to your identity and self-image. And these two perspectives stand in opposition to one another. So first, let's look at the world's view of your identity. The world's view says your identity is found through what you do, what you do. Now, we already had uh, Maddie up here, and she gave uh, some answers to some questions, but she didn't know some others as well, too, because she it's unknown. But that's kind of what happens. You, you get with people you don't really know sometimes, and the first question that comes out of your mouth sometimes is, what do you do? And you're identified in that way. We live in a world where people really struggle with their identity. 
They want to present a, an, an air on social media that they are always at their best in attitude and appearance. Um, while Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter can be real blessings at times, sometimes they can take a toll on how we see ourselves. We post something up there and we get great responses, but then there's someone else possibly that goes, what are you talking about? And their response is negative. And then, you know, when our worth is determined by likes and favorites and retweets, then our value will always waver based on an image we have tried to advance. A church in the New Testament began to listen to, to that lie and believe uh, salvation and identity would be derived from what we do. It was the church in Galatia. And it's almost like they felt that since Jesus worked for them on the cross, they needed to work to earn that spot in heaven as well. The Apostle Paul points out that they were mistakenly starting to find their identity and salvation through the works they were doing. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul uh, responds to this, and he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and, try, and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel, if, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Paul kind of repeats himself there in that portion of scripture, doesn't he? I was at a junior high track meet taking pictures, and as I getting ready to take pictures of the, I think it was the 400 meter run, and uh, the, the starter was already given instructions to the runners there. And, and uh, one of the runners was from North Clackamas Christian School. And, and I was there getting ready to go to take pictures as he was starting off. And his parent was one of the coaches as well. Now, the starter already gave instructions what they should do and everything else around the track. And, and stay in your lane. Uh, make sure you come through and don't, don't, uh, don't change lanes and all that. And I'm standing there getting ready to take pictures. And the coach, parent is there speaking to the athlete child. And she says, remember, remember so-and-so, stay in your lane throughout the whole race. And the hilarious thing, I just, I started laughing. The, the child goes, got it, mom. He's <laughs> like, don't tell me, I, I got this. <laughs> so she repeated what the starter was saying. But sometimes, you know, parents do that, right? We do that. We want to make sure the child understands what we said. And, uh, and we want to make sure it was heard and, and that it was an important thing. Well, Paul here is doing the same thing as well. An important lesson, instruction to uh, the church in Galatia. And Paul, Paul has received word that due to false preachers, many of the Christians departed and deserted the gospel of grace. And he's, he is conveying that legalism and self-righteousness are terrible, terrible sins. In fact, some of Christ's strongest words of rebuke were spoken to the uh, legalistic rich, uh, uh, religious leaders there. And you probably recall uh, those uh, moments in Scripture where he spoke out pretty harshly. And some ask why the Bible is so harsh on legalists. 
I mean, you got everything in order, ready to go. This is the next thing you do. And if you don't do it, well, you make it right and fix it. Why is that so bad? Maybe it's because God knows that so many can be led astray. So many can be destroyed and burdened by legalism. And so these legalistic teachers were doing the same. It just cuts the heart out of the gospel and reduces Christianity to being no different from all the other religions. Do these things, make sure you cross T's, dot your I's, and you're good to go, and here you are. Go to heaven. It, it doesn't work that way. The Galatians had, had a works mentality, though, that said you need to earn your way to heaven, so do your part. Their sentiments seemed to be, I'm glad you've, you've got Jesus and, and you've experienced his amazing grace, but that's not enough. You need to do a little bit more. There was pressure to return to the Old Testament way of living. And let's be honest, some people today are drawn toward a works mentality because God's grace seems so illogical. You mean you just got to pray and it's good and God forgives you? It's got to be more. You can't just do that. It's got to be something big that you got to do more than just believe. The concept of unconditional love from a perfect God seems far-fetched and way too incredible. After all, you, you can't neatly outline it into three points and then say, well, that makes sense because it doesn't, <laughs> which is why it is a gift that can't be earned. So both Christians and non-Christians continue to boast and brag about what they do in hopes of getting them a little closer to that golden heavenly ticket. But the Christian life is about trusting, not trying. And we need to remember that. As a teaching math major, um, I've had uh, I, plenty of opportunities and I've had my share of logic and proofs for math. And that's one thing that, that's fascinating to me, but it's probably one of my, the Achilles heel of math for me. It's like, oh, that's so tough. How do you get to that point? But uh, in those things, in that logic and, 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 and proofs and stuff, and, and also computer programming comes along with that as well, too. I had a little bit of that in, in college. And uh, so there was a lot of that going on that you had to navigate. And in all that, there's this term called syllogism. And syllogism, basically, it's a kind of logical argument that applies deductive reasoning. So in a computer programming, it would be like, if this is true and this is true, then this will happen. This is, this, this is the next, this is the con conclusion, basically. And, and so if A is true and B is true, then C is true. And the Latin word for therefore is ergo, and maybe you've heard that before, ergo. And, and some teachers have used it by saying, if A is true and B is true, ergo C is true. And you sound really academic and all that when you do that way. Uh, traveling back from the track meet we were at um, on Saturday, uh, we were uh, watching Bree run uh, uh, 800 and, uh, and others there too from North Clackamas. It was over in Oloa. And uh, coming back from that meet, um, we had to get gas. My car was getting low on gas. Now, if you use this syllogism way of you know, uh, two propositions and a conclusion, uh, my, car light, my car fuel light was on. That was true. And uh, an almost empty gas tank turns on the fuel light. So, therefore, ergo, my car needed gas. So we had to go and get some fuel um, before we got home. And some people think good works will logically get you into heaven. 
the two propositions in their syllogism are God hates sin, I do good works, their false conclusion is, ergo, I will go to heaven. And that doesn't work out. But the Bible teaches something different. The Bible's two main propositions are, God hates sin, each of us is a sinner. And so that two propositions there are, are, are a little different than what people think about all this. And Martin Luther said that if you try to get to heaven using logic, you will ergo to hell if you try to do that way. Uh, Martin Luther said this. He said, grace is divinely illogical. He said, the gospel is not a therefore. The gospel is a resounding nevertheless. God hates sin. I am a sinner. Nevertheless, I can go to heaven. The gospel of grace is not logical, but it is true because Jesus paid the price for my sin on the cross. And this is one of the, of the reasons that Christianity is, is different from every other religion. Grace is made possible by the sacrifice of the one who is perfect. Maybe you've heard the old saying, works says do, grace says done. And we need to keep that in mind as we are tempted to do. <laughs> Paul himself, the writer of Galatians, is one of the best examples uh, and illustrations of the truth he is talking about. He was a man with, with great guilt, a blasphemer, uh, a persecutor, a violent man, uh, self-identified as the worst of sinners. But he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, that the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Paul had experienced the great nevertheless of the gospel. And the result of living under a works-based mentality can mess with one's identity, <laughs> big time. The law and trying to earn our way to heaven is not good news at all. It, it simply produces feelings of inadequacy and guilt. It, it's basically a treadmill that never shuts off, and you keep on running, keep on running, and get nowhere. <laughs> If you're in search of grace, don't allow Satan to get you mired in the mud of guilt. If you, are, if you are a Christian who has repented of a sin, there's no reason to allow the past to paralyze your power in the present. You need to accept the forgiveness. And God loves you as a, uh, uh, as a father loves a child. You need to realize that God wants you to do good works for his kingdom just make certain you do them out of devotion and not out of duty. And here's the second contrasting view when it comes to your identity and self-image. Being known by who we are. Being known by who we are. Unfortunately, this one comes straight from Scripture. So the biblical view is your identity is found in who you are. Wow, that, uh, that one kind of goes goes really against what society tells us, doesn't it? <laughs> that doesn't sound uh, uh, like, like what, the, what the news and the, and the advertisements are, are telling us these days. And the world tells us we should prefer that our identity be found in what we do. That way we can start stockpiling some good deeds to overload some of those secret sins beneath the surface. The more I am able to give to those people on the on the, on the roads and intersections, the more times I can come to church, the more times I can give to the church, 
out of duty and all that, maybe I can offset what I've done in my life. But what if your identity could come from someone who lived a perfect life? What if he could become your advocate and a transforming power in your life? Jesus can. There was a woman whose niece came home from the Christian preschool at their church, and some of the relatives began to go through the normal questions. How was your day? And what happened at school today? And through the course of conversation, the preschooler shared this news. <laughs> Jesus wasn't there today. <laughs> so her surprised mother said, he wasn't? No, Jesus wasn't there, the girl said. He didn't come by because he was out of town that day. <laughs> what? Well, everyone kind of chuckled, but it raised the curiosity of her parents. They did some investigating and found that the preacher of the church poked his head into the Christian preschool every day to say hi to the children. Even though he was very busy and swamped with responsibilities, the kids always looked forward to his kind words and big smile. And somehow, through the course of time, this little toddler had just assumed the man was Jesus. <laughs> he was out of town this day quite a compliment for a minister. The more we lean on the Holy Spirit and the less we lean on our own understanding, the more we will resemble Christ. Evidently, that's what happened when, with, with Simon Peter. Something caused his identity to change. In case you don't know his story, uh, let's replay the regression and you'll see the identity theft that Satan master, master, masterfully pulled off. Jesus and his disciples are eating the, the Last Supper in the upper room. And, and we read about a conversation Jesus had with the disciples in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus said to them, tonight every one of you is going to desert me. And uh, Peter objected at this and said something along the lines of, no way, Lord. They all might leave you, but not me. In fact, I'm willing to die for you. <clears throat> and then in verses 34 and 35, Jesus answered, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But, but Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. In just a matter of hours, though, the, we find that Jesus was arrested in the garden. And all the disciples fled and ran for their lives. Peter and John followed uh, Jesus from a, a, a very safe distance, though. And at some point, as they... As they got closer to the courtyard of the high priest, Peter went one direction, John went in another direction, and they separated. Now, they've hung in there pretty well, but things were about to change for Simon Peter. Now, Peter was trying to find out what was going on with Jesus when all of a sudden a young slave girl came up and asked him, or said to him, you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Simon Peter said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know Jesus. And to get away and try to keep his secrecy, he moved over to a, a, a fire that was burning there where a group of people were milling around and staying warm. It's a little cold outside, so he leaned in closer to the to fire to warm himself. But the light of the fire revealed his identity. Another person saw his face, and he said, Well, you were with Jesus. You're one of the followers, aren't you? And Simon, Simon Peter replied, I'm telling you, I don't know this Jesus you keep talking about. I don't know him. And again, he moved aside. And some time later, a third person who had seen him in the garden when Jesus was arrested said, you were with Jesus Christ. You were with the Galilean. 
And what Simon Peter said is kind of difficult for us to translate in today's language, but basically he called down curses, claiming not to know this Jesus. And no sooner had the words escaped his lips than a rooster began to crow. At that precise moment, Jesus was being moved from one place to another, and his face was beaten and bloodied. He was bruised. They dragged Jesus by right when uh, Simon Peter made that third denial. And it says in, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 61, it says, The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. You talk about an unforgettable moment. <laughs> As Peter began to realize the, the, the prediction had come true, he thought, I can't believe what I've done. I've sold out my Savior. And the Bible tells us that he ran off into the darkness and wept bitterly. The message paraphrases it this way. It says, and he cried and he cried and he cried. <laughs> Maybe you get the picture. This wasn't some accidental slip of the tongue. <laughs> Three different times Simon Peter betrayed his master and close friend. His dreams and his hopes were totally shattered. Now, my guess is that uh, at some point in your life, you also have experienced a moment like Simon Peter experienced, where you just felt so low, so defeated, so, so disappointed in what you had done. It seemed like your, your life had been broken into pieces. I'm sure we can all relate. And it's in that valley that Satan loves to try and steal your identity. He gets us to focus on what we've done rather than who we can be in Christ. Then on Sunday, Jesus conquered the grave. Weeks later, the, the Holy Spirit made his presence known, just like Jesus promised. Simon Peter had a change of identity. Peter moved from fear to faith, from lying to save his life to preaching to risk his life. The Holy Spirit began to personally indwell those who accepted Christ as their Savior and Lord. And, and he promises to do the same thing for every person who accepts Jesus today. And here's the good news that comes from that. The Holy Spirit can do in our lives what we can't. So transformation becomes possible. Your life can be changed. Simon Peter started to change. He, he began to rely on the living spirit and his boldness just flourished. Take a look at some evidence of this change in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. See, the disciples were no longer in hiding. They were, they were stepping out in faith. They had experienced a drastic change. And this is an exciting passage because it reveals that the crowd knew Jesus, and somehow the preaching and courage of these two ordinary men resembled Christ. This wasn't some, <laughs> some toddler who, who saw Jesus in the life of a person like, like, their, like their pastor. These were adults. They looked at Simon Peter and said, something's different here. And they couldn't deny the resemblance. It astonished them. 
Evidently, Peter and John were becoming just like Jesus Christ. They were putting their, their past mistakes behind them, and they had repented and were intent on being known by who they are. We could even say by whose they are. And if you are a Christ follower, you belong to him, regardless of the sins in your past. They may be sins of self-righteousness, maybe rebellion, but regardless of, of your particular list that might be in your mind, Christ offers a new identity. A, a few years back, I read about churches in several cities that were reaching out to broken ladies who were dancers at strip clubs. An amazing ministry. In a variety of creative ways, the women, the women in those churches were introducing those ladies to the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ, hoping they would consider making a commitment to Christ. All over the country, many of the ladies were, were leaving the industry and turning to the Lord. And I came across the, this testimony of a pastor and his wife who were involved with this kind of ministry. Listen to what he says. He says, my wife and I partnered with one of these ministries in our town. I teach a Bible study for these ladies a few times each year, and they are so hungry for scripture. Several years ago, my wife started an annual tradition of having a Christmas dinner and party for these ladies at our house. Many times they have been wounded by others and overlooked by churches. The day arrived and into our home streamed these ladies, most of whom had found Christ and had hung up their dancing shoes. There were a few who were in Bible studies and still contemplating taking the step to leave that life behind. Some were quite uneasy at first, but as time went on, they began to feel safe and loved. When it came time for the meal, they sat down at decorated tables with place settings. Some were nervous, and several women shared that they had never been to a Christmas dinner in their entire life. But the longer they were there, the more comfortable they became. Throughout the meal, laughter filled the house as conversations flowed and relationships were formed and deepened. Gifts from a women's Bible study group were given to each lady, and my son presented each with a red rose. I later learned that one woman had, bought, had brought a friend with her to the dinner who was also a former dancer. While en route, that friend learned that the party was taking place at a preacher's house and she became very nervous. She explained that her experience with Christians dated back a couple of decades. One night as she was entering the club to start her shift, there was a line of Christians outside with signs and posters. She said they called her names. They called her a whore and shouted that she was heading for hell. Her friend in the car said, oh, you don't need to worry about that happening. This will be very different. Before they left our home, I shared a 15-minute sermonette about the true meaning of Christmas, and then we prayed. Those ladies don't pray like most church people pray. There was no pretense. They had experienced major transformations and had left behind a sordid past, and they poured their hearts out in prayer. Then I closed with prayer, and in the middle of it, I paused because I wanted to acknowledge how rare and how blessed I am with my wife. So I prayed, and Lord, I also want to thank you for a wife who allows me to invite dozens of women over to the home for dinner. The group responded with some amens, and one quickly quipped, stripper girls at that. Everyone laughed, and I continued with my prayer. 
The second I said my final amen, one of the gals who had left the industry and is a committed Christian blurted out, but we're not stripper girls, not anymore. The Bible says we are daughters of the king. We are new creations. And the other Christian ladies agreed with her. So did I. Now, evidently, that lady uh, wanted to make sure that the group of that Bible study knew <clears throat> that this is what they, they were, but it was not who they are. You see, Satan knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. And Jesus knows your sin, but calls you by your name. There's a huge difference there. Now, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, earlier I told you about the church in Galatia. Now, let me, let me tell you about another church in the New Testament. <laughs> you probably are somewhat familiar with a couple of books in the New Testament called First and Second Corinthians. These were letters written from the Apostle Paul to the, Corinth, to the Christians there in the city of Corinth. You have to understand that first century Corinth was a, a sex-saturated society. Corinth would make Las Vegas look like an Amish community. Back then, people were, who, who wanted prayer due, due to some physical struggle would take a plaster paris of, of whatever body part was causing them anguish or pain, then they would hang it from the top of the temple courts, and people would come in and pray for that part of their body. It was a sexually charged society because there was such permissiveness, and their appetites couldn't be quenched. They continued to try different things so they could get some type of euphoria and high. Some of the things that took place in Corinth back then were pretty unbelievable. At their temple, they had temple prostitutes. So you would go to church to worship, and then some would pay to have sex with a temple prostitute, knowing a portion of the money would go to the temple treasury. How, how warped is that? If ever there was a bizarre setting and city that desperately needed a message of grace and hope, it was first century Corinth. <laughs> I believe it's today as well, too. <laughs> but Paul went there during such, a sh such, such shameless behavior and started preaching about oneness with Christ and how the people could have an identity change through Jesus. He started sharing the gospel, and something happened over time. These people who were physically faith, faithless in every way, you can probably imagine, they embraced the gospel message of love and hope and transformation through Jesus Christ. They repented of lives lived for, for sin and self. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he knew them well. He wrote to them from that kind of framework. So now, with that sorted background in your mind about Corinth, let's do a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul wrote to them in verses 9 through 11, and he said, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men, with, men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. And he goes on to say, But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There was a drastic change in the lives of many who lived in Corinth. There was a change in their identity because God didn't see them for who they were. 
And when you think about it, why would he? <laughs> they are completely different because they had been washed, they've been sanctified, they've been justified through Jesus. This is who they became. And Paul knew the church. He knew this church in Corinth. So when he wrote this letter from miles and miles away, he was envisioning their individual faces and their lives, and he knew their stories. In his mind, he seemed to walk through every row in that church, considering what their past sin struggle had been. And then he said, that's what you were. That was your past. Now your identity can be found in Jesus Christ through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. God gave, God gave you incredible value when you were created in the image of God and when Jesus was willing to die for you. It's got to be so freeing in, in, your, in your heart and your mind to by, be identified with the one who is perfect instead of being known by all our mistakes and weaknesses. Isn't it great to be identified with the one who's perfect? I'm going to ask Annie and Don to Come on up. They're going to lead us in one last song. And as they do, I, I just want to remind you again, don't confuse what you do with who you are. And don't confuse what you've done with who you, who you can become. Your identity can be found in Christ and not in your sinful self. God specializes in giving new identities. But don't take my word for it. Take it from the Apostle Paul who experienced it firsthand and put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Again, a letter to that, that church in Corinth. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. As we sing this last song, may it be a reminder that we can know, know Jesus more and that should be our desire as we live through these days and want to glorify him, we can have that identity in him, who we are.